You're listening to the Big Old Bible. Go get Work on All right, welcome back. This is the Big Old Bible Podcast. We hope everybody had a good, uh, good Christmas, a good holiday, whatever you do. I had a really good holiday weekend, and uh, what about you, Jim? Yeah, that was great. It was nice. It was quite relaxing. Got to spend some time with family. It was, it was very blessed. It was nice. nice. Very cool. Well, uh, we took a little bit of a break last week. We recorded, and then we uh, had uh, had the holiday, and now we're back. And we're going to start the run of our proper episodes in the new year. Uh, and I, I realized we hadn't talked about this last time, so I'm going to go ahead and sort of tell them what we're going to do. We're going to do a mini-episode uh, that's usually going to center around a word, a biblical word. On uh, th- Those will be released on Wednesdays. And then we will do a longer form, proper episode on uh, whatever passage we're covering. Uh, that was my phone falling off onto the floor. Uh, we're going to do release those on Fridays, the longer episodes. And like I said, we'll alternate Old uh, and New Testament uh, every other week. So in the first week of the new year, we're going to be talking about Genesis 1. And uh, we're going to talk about the word Elohim. Uh, so. So, good, good yeah, good uh, good first biblical word. It's a very important one. So, um, we're going to do that starting the first week of the new year. We're going to do another introductory episode here, though, where we talk about Psalm 2. Because uh, we talked in the first one about what the Bible is. We talked about it being a channel of revelation from God to man that's meant to make uh, make us wise and teach us how to live and give us all the necessary information to... Uh, navigate human existence um, in a way that is that is uh, pleasing to God, the Creator. So, uh, Gen- uh, Psalm two is really good for uh, talking about Jesus and who is uh, what the nature of the Messiah is. But that's a big, complicated question. Uh, what I think I would call today's episode, if I had to title it, uh, and I do, so what we'll probably call it is "Who is God's Son." That is uh, an interesting question that's raised by Psalm 2, and it's one of the clearest passages where this dual idea, uh, uh, Hebrew uh, tradition uh, before the Second Temple had, uh, of divinity, uh, is most clear, I think. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, actually, you learn to see it all over the place. I mean, it's very clear here in Psalm 2, but you start to really pick up on a lot of that stuff. The more you tune into that, yeah, it's definitely here. I think it'd be fun to really pick that apart today. Okay, well, let's go through it. I'll just uh, read the passage once through. It's a little bit. Uh, it's exactly actually half as as long as, uh, or twice as long rather as uh, Psalm one, twelve verses. So let's just read. I'm going to read from the ESV today. I did NIV last time, but uh, well, I might switch it up. Sometimes ESV, sometimes NIV. Sometimes we might even bust out the Old King James on y'all if we feel mm. like getting. Yeah, getting okay. medieval. No, <laughs> no, no, actually not quite medieval, more like Reformation period. <laughs> yeah, so there's been a lot of coffee going into this podcast. Okay. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart 
and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, or the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, one thing that I'll point out right away, I think the best argument for these two psalms forming an introduction to the entire book of Psalms is you end with this uh, this blessed are statement at the end of Psalm 2, which parallels very well uh, the blessed are statement, uh, or the blessed is statement in the beginning of Psalm 1. Uh, blessedness comes from pursuing the path of life rather than the path of, of wickedness. And it also comes from taking refuge in God and specifically his anointed. So we'll kind of break down what that means. But if you go back to to verse 1, you have the psalm opening with this image of uh, the nations gathering together, and the word that the ESV translates rage, uh, which I think the King James translates it that way too, um, it sounds, the, the I think, the coolest, but it actually doesn't really uh, capture very well the Hebrew word. Uh, I mean, it, it, it does in a certain sense, but the Hebrew word had to do with sort of conspiring and whispering and noisily gathering. So the image is like, you know, if, if you've ever been to a concert, you get there super early and there's just a few people around and then slowly more and more people start to come and then the crowd gets noisier and noisier until right before the band comes out, they're all chanting, you know, the name of the band if it's, you know, a certain kind of concert. Yeah. So it, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. It, it, this is one of those situations where when you're studying Hebrew or Greek, I guess for that matter, when you have a word that only occurs once in the text, mm. it, it's tricky and it's and it's easy. It's tricky in that you can't look at other places where it's used to get some context, but it's easy, so it means what it means. And you're right, the, the Hebrew word ragash means to be in tumult or commotion, to conspire or plot. Yeah. So they're not just making noise, because I think there's a there's a conspiracy. Uh, conspiracy. There's some yeah. sort of a tumult on here for them uh, to be in a vehement noise in, in the usage and disturbed. Yeah. And I think most English translations that don't translate it rage will translate it why do the nations conspire, at, which is a good translation. I mean, rage is also, I think, a good translation. It just, uh, you know, it doesn't. It, there are some translations that are good for English that don't exactly capture the meaning of the Hebrew word because it's difficult to capture. This one think, translation says, why are the nations in tumultuous agitation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely uh, has the idea of both war imagery in it and conspiracy imagery and uh, sort of rising noise. It actually speaks a lot to the, the supernatural worldview here. You got the idea of, of the Genesis 11 nations that were rebellious to God. They are in a tumultuous conspiracy. They're, they're, they're 
plotting against God. They're plotting in vain, it says there in verse 1. And so you have the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and his anointed in verse 2. So this this dynamic, which goes all the way back to Genesis 11, and I don't, I don't know at what point ever we want to deep dive into all that stuff is clearly the, the context here for what oh, yeah. said here in Psalm 2. Oh, we'll deep dive into Genesis 11 uh, some, at some point later this year, I, I think. Good. So that'll be uh, that'll be fun. The second line of verse 1, the, the people's plot in vain, that uh, word for plotting in vain, uh, the, the literal Hebrew, is, if I'm remembering this correctly, is something like plot a vain thing. It's uh, not the uh, the word that's used in Ecclesiastes for um, emptiness, vanity, havel, but it is a thing that is that. And so uh, that's my understanding of that word anyway. It's, yeah, it's a worthless thing, something yeah. that has no value. Yeah, so it, the idea is that from the outset, this will come to nothing. And then you get a description of what the conspiracy is. It's the kings of the earth setting themselves against Yahweh and against his anointed. And I, I think it's interesting, and maybe you were about to point this out, that you get kings and rulers both mentioned here. Now, yes. there's an explanation of that, that that does technically work, that doesn't have to involve the supernatural realm. But, I mean, it's a lot cooler if you do. You know? <laughs> I think I think both are to be taken into consideration. Yeah. When we look at the writings of Paul in the New Testament, he's, he's making use of language like this in the Greek, which clearly ties back here to the Hebrew of, of, of kings and rulers and powers and dominions and thrones. And, and they can mean human people in certain positions, but it oftentimes are the rulers and the kings in the heavenly realm and the heavenly places. So I, I think yeah. you have both working here because when you look at the nations, which are, like I see in verse one, nations are, are, are groups of people based upon culture and, and, and language and the peoples, the non-covenantal Abrahamic peoples, the, the Goyim would be how it would be translated there in verse one. Over all those nations, there will be a king or a ruler or something such as that, a pharaoh, whatever the case may yeah. be. So, so you have that, but behind the throne, if you will, supernaturally speaking, there is going to be a supernatural entity that was influencing or, or guiding or leading or, or something such as that. So I think you have both both aspects working here. Well, and the if you take into account the big picture of what you've been talking about with your supernatural class and what uh, you know Dr. Heiser gets into with a lot of his material. The big picture is uh, there is a parallel rebellion in the supernatural realms that um, that parallels in some ways the the human rebellion, or rather the human rebellion parallels the the divine right. rebellion. Um, and so uh, the idea that not just uh, it's not just that this world is broken and that the leaders of this world rebel against God in very obvious ways, but it's that there are uh, powers in the heavenly realms that are doing the same thing. Correct. And, and because John quotes Psalm 2 in Revelation, I think you, you need to have Psalm 2 in your mind when you think about Revelation and vice versa. And so when you see the, the conflict in Revelation between the adversary, the, the, the serpent, the dragon, and the nations like Babylon, uh, and, and then they are plotted or are, are, are set against God, you know, his anointed, the lamb, and, and those on his side, you have this this dynamic in Revelation. You have to see it here. So when you like verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's their that's their cry to to be out from under the as they perceive oppression um, of God. And, and obviously, we know that God wins in the end in Revelation. But this dynamic is clearly here in Revelation and Psalm two. I I find something so interesting about verse three. Um, 
I don't know exactly if I've thought this all out, but it's just that there's a there's a pulling apart and a throwing away imagery in in verse three, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is the nations are resisting being under the rule of Yahweh and of His anointed, which is something that we think of as being more of like a Christian, a New Testament kind of idea that the the the, the church is supposed to go and evangelize and incorporate all peoples everywhere. But we don't associate that as much with um, sort of an ancient Davidic Jewish tradition. But it was a core part of it, I think, that yeah. one day all the nations would be under the rule of, of Yahweh's anointed. Yeah. I mean, that the Jewish people have always been Messianic people. They still technically are. They just rejected God's Messiah and they're still looking for one. But yeah, I think that's all there. It, it's always been that way. Yeah. And so I don't think that's a surprise when you see these threads connecting throughout Scripture. It's, it, we're supposed to see that. So the idea is that the nations don't want to be under this rule. And so they want to both tear apart you know, God's people, Yahweh's people, which to the, the psalmist would have been Israel. And they want to throw away the cords that the Israel is attempting to put on them. But e- even buried in that idea is the idea that Israel is trying to bond the nations to itself and trying to rope in. Mm-hmm. Uh, other peoples, um, which again, I, I think we kind of lose sight of sometimes that that was always a part of the plan. Uh, so we get this transition now that that conspiracy is set up in verses one through three to the divine response, which sort of runs through uh, verse four, uh, verse four through verse nine. And so this is some really interesting stuff. So the psalmist is still speaking here, but the psalmist says, he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord will hold them in derision I mean, and the the literal sense of the hebrew is uh yahweh will laugh he will mock them <laughs> um the, the, that word for derision has to do with mocking and ridicule um so the idea is that uh not just is is uh a divine judgment for these people not going to go well um but their plans are, are foolish and silly um to the god of creation yeah without a doubt and and I think that's this idea that that the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe is Yahweh, without a doubt. And and throughout uh, the biblical narrative, you have this this conflict between Yahweh and and those forces that are opposite to him. And and here, this is what the psalmist is getting into. I think it's also important to remember that even though he's not mentioned by name clearly all throughout, starting in verse two, you have a clear reference to his anointed, to the Messiah, to, yeah. to the Christ. And so you know, back in in the time when this psalm would have been fresh and new and performed and sung, you know, by whomever, David or whatever, you know, they were looking, this is clearly fulfilled in Christ. And so that's, that's our context that we have the privilege of looking back into, but yeah, God is, is not going to be in any way harmed by their, their opposition. He's just going to hold them in derision and, and simply get suck. He's going to laugh yeah. uh, at their, at their attempt to rebel. Yeah. I mean, it bears pointing out, and you just did it well in verse two. It, very clearly, there are two figures in heaven um, yeah. here. There is the Lord or Yahweh, and then there is His anointed, which is a separate figure grammatically and, and functions as a second fi- second figure in the psalm. So there's no sort of weaseling around and trying to to say that there's not 
a second figure in this right. uh, conception of of uh, of divinity. Now, you Which can, reminds me real quick, right there on my desk, I don't know if you can see a third book down in my stack. I got for, for a gift, I got the Alan Segal's book on the uh, two powers in heaven. I can't wait to dig into that one because okay. he, he takes a look at that that position of the, the Benetarian view of God. It'll be... It'll be interesting to see what, uh, as you dive more into that idea, what you what you uncover, because it, uh, you know, you you could explain this way by saying, well, that his anointed is not a divine figure, but a human figure, a, a king who's his representative, and that was a very standard approach to kingship in the ancient world. Was that the king was the son of God? He stood in God's place and was God's messenger to all the common people, and or or the or a messenger of the gods. If you're dealing with a polytheistic culture. Um, that was a very standard uh, view of the relationship between king, king the king and the divine. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I don't think that that explanation, that, that it being simply a description of David, uh, is sufficient, especially when you when you take into account what early Christians thought about Psalm yeah, 2. Yeah. I would agree. Uh, I think Daniel had the same idea in Daniel 7. You had the ancient of days seated, and you had the, the another son, another god as the son of man coming on the clouds. You, you see this two figures multiple times in Scripture. I think, I think yes, I mean, obviously David was the anointed of God in that sense yeah. that he was a king, but I think this is going to be, um, I think we see that dual, you know, fulfillment in Christ as well, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, the Psalms are so complex to read, and um, we'll cover this at more depth, sort of unique features of the Psalms when we talk deal with the Psalms sort of properly in the in the podcast. It, you know, I, I think that it's important to know that when this Psalm was written, I think one of the main functions of it was David is the human chosen representative of God who sits on the throne on, on Zion. And so you better listen to him and respect him and submit to him if he <laughs> is your king. That that's definitely an important part of this psalm because this psalm is like is a coronation psalm. I mean, that's almost universally agreed upon in, in scholarship that it was yeah. that its purpose is to praise a king and ascribe uh, to that king divine legitimacy and and blessing. And that king here is is either David or a king in David's line. Mm -hmm. um, and and so um, it, that that's an important feature. But then the Psalms are often a, as much about how people interpreted them later as as they were about what they meant in their original, oftentimes Davidic context. Mm -hmm. Down the line, um, I mean, to to early Christians, this this Psalm was an extremely important foreshadowing of the their messianic hope, the divine figure, the son of God who steps into the story of humanity and steps into time and space and, and takes on the form of a man. But yeah, anyway, that was a, that was kind of a, a long-winded ramble for me. But uh, so the idea in verse four, God's gonna, gonna, going to ridicule these people. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them um, in his fury. And so that sounds very uh, angry and metal and uh, and vengeful, but I want to point out that this is not even God's judgment that we're talking about here. This is just the anger that is preceding the judgment that God's going to uh, ultimately pronounce on on you know rebellious nations and rebellious powers in in, in the heavenly realms as well. Well, and they should be terrified. Yeah. I mean, they've plotted in vain. They've raged and tumulted and conspired against the, the King of Heaven, the God of Heaven, the seated. God of heaven. And so 
Sure, as when he pronounces his 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 judgment and his 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 victory in verse six, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Of course, that's going to be terrifying. They're defeated. Yeah, well, and that, uh, dealing with verse six is, uh, I mean, six is kind of a hinge point of the of the whole psalm. That uh, the idea I have, the ESV says, I have set my king. Uh, my preferred translation there is, I have anointed my king, because that's literally what what the Hebrew word means, and. For reasons that are weird and unknown to me, a lot of translations will say either set or installed instead of anointed. But the word anointed, that Hebrew word, uh, and you can double check this for me, but I know this to be true. uh, That word literally means to pour out. And the theory is that it goes all the way back to very ancient sort of libation offerings where you would pour out some liquid, you know, wine or milk or, or some precious liquid onto an altar and it was a portion given to the gods. And then ultimately that transforms into the kingly idea of being anointed with oil and that oil uh, uh, bestows on, on the king God's blessing and uh, symbolizes you know, the spirit of God uh, going upon that king. But that, that pouring out idea is carried all the way to fullness for us as Christians in Christ, uh, you have where you have a pouring out on Zion, uh, and so what is said of David, you know, a thousand years before Christ lives, is also true powerfully of Christ, and that's why this psalm. I think verse six is really a key to why this psalm was so important to first-century Christians. Yeah, I mean, based on what I'm looking at here in, in my little uh, Bible, that's I mean, you're right on with that. The word yes. is connected to being poured out. And I mean, it, it's got all kinds of interesting uses, pour, pour out, cover, to melt, molten, all that kind of stuff. And it is definitely connected to uh, the anointing. And then, of course, obviously, when when an individual would have been anointed, they were the chosen. They were the ones who were seated as uh, the king. So I, you see how that has has progressed and come down through the usage there and, and why it works here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you could reasonably translate Psalm 6, I think, in sort of a thought, loose kind of thought for thought way as... I have poured out my king on Zion, my holy hill, which, I mean, obviously for Christians, it's, um, you know, that's a big deal. Um, So uh, all the way back in in the Psalms, you have uh, a lot of New Testament stuff being set up uh, or or stuff that at least from a Christian perspective, uh, you know, is divine foreshadowing of things that are going to come in the New Testament. And if you'll indulge me for a second. Oh, yeah. we just kind of chat for a second on this the way I was, I don't think it was maliciously done this way. The way I was trained, raised, taught as I was growing up is that the old Testament was for good stories for Bible classes, maybe some character studies, but as far as really tying the new Testament back into the old, I was, I was exposed to very little of that growing up. Oh yeah. The new Testament. I mean, in fact, even to the point where I, I've, I've heard brethren say, well, just to stick to the teachings of Jesus and Paul and, and let that Old Testament stuff just be for, for Bible classes. And, and that's just the wrong way to approach that. You, you can't understand the New Testament properly without these Old Testament references. Oh, yeah. And it's so critical that, that hey, I think the Bible writers of the New Testament, all of those men, they expected us as readers, their audience, to, to read a phrase. And to see a concept and go, oh, yeah, I remember reading that back in Psalm 2 or something. Yeah. And so I've actually found myself having to do more work now in my mid-40s to backtrack and, and try to 
reset my context to, to be able to see these things and pull these things out. And I feel like I was, I was cheated in a sense, but it's ultimately my, my responsibility. Yeah. And so hopefully by us doing this here and, and, and teaching there at, at, with our congregation here in Georgetown, that we can um, kind of right those wrongs in that sense and, and give people a better foundational understanding. Not that we're perfect, but we're, I know myself for sure. I'm learning how to find these little yeah. strings and connections and, and things. And, and it's, it's so, so profitable and, and such a blessing to see how the scriptures really work. Well, and, we certainly get cheated sometimes, I think, by what I'm going to call lazy Bible teaching. Yeah. But I think we've also all been cheated on some level by, like, just time and history and sure. chance. Things are lost to translation. Yeah. You know, language changes over time. And so, like, a lot, there are a lot of, like, threads woven through the Bible that are just, that are totally linguistic. That are just, like, th this word occurring here and here in these two instances that are otherwise totally unrelated is an important marker of like this idea popping up again and again. And some of that stuff is totally lost in English. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are, you know, ideas and images that run all through scripture that again are embedded in Hebrew language that don't exactly come across into English or sometimes they come across better than other times. And so it, you have to sort of wade into the language to bring this out. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, it's worth doing that and that people can take it and that, uh, you know, people are a lot uh, smarter and more interested in this stuff than, than people give them credit for. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that even though we've been cheated to some extent just by, you know, living in a different time and context, that's the wrong way to think about it. The correct way to think about it is I get to do this exciting work of sort oh, yeah. of going back through the maze of, of history and language and figuring out what these things mean. And it is exciting. It, it's just, I feel the responsibility as, as, a, as an elder and as a, as a preacher to, to try to, I'm not saying right the wrongs, just to try to do a better job. Not that I'm a scholar. I certainly am one of the other things from a scholar. I just read a lot of stuff and, and think about things too much, I guess. But when I, when I teach, when I'm, when I'm preparing lessons, I want to make sure I'm not neglecting many of the things that were neglected before uh, in my teachings and my studies and stuff. And so learning how to look back and to connect the dots is so critical. So as people are studying the Bible, look for those and, and just be honest and, and be, be very scholarly as you approach this, understand. And, and, and if you don't, then seek the answer or get help. But I mean, it's just, it's so much fun. It really is an enjoyable thing to, to deep dive and yeah. dig in. Well, and everybody can, everybody can study in, what we might call a scholarly kind of mode, but if we define that correctly, just to mean by understanding that the Bible is written in a different language and a different culture and a different part of the world, then, then, uh, you know, then, then our baseline. And so we have to, you know, again, you've used the analogy and I've heard other people use it too. It would be insane for us to, you know, go to, uh, you know, Iraq or go to Russia or go to Saudi Arabia and expect that culture to conform to our cultural expectations. It's just not going to happen. And you're going to have a worse time <laughs> in those countries if you do that. And so in the same way, if you try to impose, you know, 2021 or now almost 2022, uh, 21st century Western American culture and language onto the Bible, it's just not going to work. You're going to have a warped idea of what the Bible means. So we do it all the time. Yeah, we do. So anyway, I, I just, that, that hit 
popped in my head there. So I appreciate you kind of indulging me on that. Oh, no. That's one of my motivations. It really is. Every time I study, I try to be as honest as I can. I try to remove the filters that are on my mind and, and take a fresh look at the scriptures. Um, yeah. Like we're doing right now today. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I mean, getting back to the Psalm, but sort of continuing the same idea um, that there is a decree of Yahweh in verse seven. And so we, uh, the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. And then, and then he quotes Yahweh himself saying, you are my son today. I have begotten you. And that should just ring every bell in New Testament Bible students' minds. Oh, right? yeah. Should come to the baptism and the transfiguration and John 3.16. So many things should be going off in your mind when you read those words. Yeah. And uh, that word, um, that word begotten is kind of an old timey English word. Um, and there's not really a good sort of contemporary use for it. Uh, I think the NIV translates, uh, verse, uh, that part of verse seven, you are my son today. I, today I have become your father, which I think is, uh, I like something about that because of course, Jesus breaking from, I think a lot of mainstream traditions about how to speak about God almost always refers to Yahweh as my father, or my father in heaven. And so God becoming your father. Not that he was ever not your father, but you are now in a father-son relationship uh, formally with God, with Yahweh. That's a huge idea to Christianity that's set up all the way back here uh, in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, and it's set up in other places too, but really clearly here. Um, you know, and of course, for, for Christians today, um, you know, and this verse is heavily connected, I think, with taking on Jesus and faith and, and, and baptism and being raised up to new life, um, being begotten of God, being born again. All of this stuff is tied in with verse seven. And then verse eight, ask of me and I will give you the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. So basically Yahweh is saying to the psalmist, anything you want, and it's yours. And he uses all the nations of the earth as a way to express that. But then, but the idea that all the nations are going to come under the reign of Yahweh, powerful New Testament idea that is carried forth in Christ. Okay, so that not basically what the adversary tempted Jesus with in his third temptation there in Matthew 4? It's exactly what he tempted him with. And that's such an interesting temptation too, because he's tempting Jesus by offering him the thing that Jesus is going to eventually have, according okay. to God's own plan. But Satan's saying, you can have it now though. Satan just didn't understand how he was going to fall yeah. into the plan. And uh, yeah, it's so interesting to see how that worked out. Satan offered him what was already going to be rightfully his, not knowing that he was playing right into God's hand. So yeah. Interesting stuff, but, but another rabbit trail. Even though it was what Jesus was ultimately going to, uh, to gain, I, you, you can't read that passage in the New Testament, though, and think that it wasn't a real temptation for Jesus. All of the temptations are clearly... Um, are clearly real temptations for Jesus. It wasn't like it was easy for him to resist Satan, but he did it perfectly. So we'll, we'll deal with all that, I guess, when we talk yep. about New Testament stuff <laughs> and the temptation of Jesus. But, um, you know, with some of these things, I'm tempted to, to quickly run down the rabbit trail and then come back. But uh, that one's that one's too long to do a quick trip. But uh, anything you want, Yahweh says, I will give it to you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations. And he goes on to say in verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron, which that's a big, interesting, important image, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, so I like the ESV translation of this. You'll break them with a rod of iron. So the, the rod of iron is a kingly 
scepter. It has to do with kingly power and authority that's being vested in David and then in a New Testament context being vested in Jesus. And so he's going to break the nations, but there's several controversial things in translation in verse 9. Some people want to say that 9, if you change the vocalization, it can be you will rule them with a rod of iron, which that would be fine too, if that's what it's supposed to say. But then you still have it in the second half of verse 9, dashing them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And that potter's vessel can, uh, it's not exactly clear in the grammar if it's a potter's is the potter's vessel is the thing that's being smashed or the thing that's doing the smashing because potters also used a tool that was basically like a stick an implement that they would use to shape earthen vessels and sometimes when a vessel didn't turn out the right way you smash it up with that same tool turn it into tile right um so it could refer to either part of that process but the idea is everything's going to be under the reign of yahweh and anything that's not under the reign of Yahweh is getting recycled, for lack of a better term. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is clearly a messianic reference, no doubt, because it's used that way in the New Testament. And and you, you already referenced that, how Jesus is that one who rules with a rod of iron and all that. He has the sovereignty, he has the right to rule. I think it's so interesting to see how this verse is used over in Revelation 3. I see Revelation two. Yeah, uh, there in, in the beginning of that vision, when John is writing to the to the churches, that one in Thyatira, he says to the one who wins the victory and does what I want until the goal is reached. And here he quotes it: I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. So John is is actually saying from the angel uh, of the Lord here, yeah, that those who are victorious. Through the tribulation, through the through the persecution, those who are faithful till the end will receive the same right to rule as the anointed, and that's that's such a fascinating concept and important to us as believers. Yeah, I I mean I I think so too. I I think um, again this psalm is just packed full of messianic stuff, but then uh, so we have this foreshadowing of a of a reigning of a of this second Yahweh figure, the reigning of God over the nations. And then in verses 10 through, uh, through 12, we have the conclusion, which is the, the psalmist breaks back in. He's, the psalmist is speaking now. It's not God speaking anymore. But he's basically giving the conclusion of the psalm, what you should take away from it if you're hearing this in, in the original Davidic context. So he says, be wise, be warned uh, that you should serve Yahweh. And you should rejoice uh, with trembling. Kissing the sun, the, the the kiss has an idea of paying homage to or or um, complete service to, lest he be angry and you you perish in your way. And again, like we talked about last week, your way or or the way has to do with your way of life. And so, in the in the midst of 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 your life, you're going to find yourself perishing. By the wrath of Yahweh, because you didn't serve him, you didn't kiss the sun, you didn't pay him the the homage and the honor that is rightfully that's rightfully due him. And so again, it's not uh, like we talked about with Psalm one. It's not a finger waggy moralistic thing. It is a for your own good, for your own preservation. It's a kiss you, of submission. You need to take yeah. heed. Yeah, yeah. It's a kiss of submission, and and it 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 mirrors you know the way that people would pay homage to ancient kings when right. they. We know we're demonstrating that they were their vassal, that they were their slave, basically. Um, yeah, Clark says in his commentary, kissing was the token of subjugation and vengeance. Yes. 
which is an interesting idea. It could be a whole podcast in and of itself. The idea that we are both Christ's slaves and we are his friends. Right. And he refers, you know, to human beings in both of these ways in the New Testament. So, um, yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, we could do a whole series of podcasts on slavery in the mm-hmm. Bible. It's an extremely fascinating study. But um, in, in verses 10 through 12, you have all the nations told to, to basically prostrate themselves, submit themselves before the, the second Yahweh figure, before the anointed, the son, as verse 12 calls it. There's been translation controversy about verse 12, too. I, you probably know more of the, about this than me, but I've heard people try to say that uh, there's uh, a phrase that God omitted in translation, so it should be, uh, you know, kiss the son of Abraham or kiss the son of Israel or something like that, yeah. which I'm like, well, if it were that, that would be fine, too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know. But it's not. I mean, at least not in the version of the Hebrew text that we have. Uh, so I, I, mean, I would have to do more research on that, but it, 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 you know, to me, it's a very clear instance of this sort of second uh, Yahweh figure, this divine sonship uh, that seems to be uh, a big part of, of ancient Hebrew theology that sort of uh, ends up getting kind of scrubbed uh, around the second century. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the, the obvious free will in verses 10 and 11 of the kings and rulers, whether oh, yeah. human or, or supernatural, make your choice, be wise, be warned, choose to serve the Lord, choose to subjugate, choose to, to love, kiss him, kiss the son, right? Submit, make your choice because his wrath is quickly kindled. Well, and the idea of serving one, one master or another, choosing one path or another, that's another big common idea in both of these Psalms. It's presented exactly the same way that Psalm one is presented to, you know, just your average common person they're presented with a choice it serve uh serve god serve yahweh or be destroyed that that's the very simple binary choice yeah so yeah i mean um to sum up the question of who is god's son god's son is the one who goes forth and accomplishes his will in the world and as christians we believe that person was jesus of nazareth and he accomplished everything that God intended uh, to bring everything to fullness on the cross of Calvary and won the victory over death by by raising from the dead. That is who God's, God's son is to us as Christians. Now, this question is complicated and uh, a murky theological question that people have been talking about and arguing about for many, many millennium. So if you're not a Christian, then that, you know, us telling you that that's what we believe about it probably doesn't do much for you. But uh, if you stick with us, I think that you'll find through the Bible, there is real foreshadowing of a coming figure that without Jesus makes the Bible end in a big, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Anticlimax. Yeah, I was going to say kind of a fizzle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Bible ends with a whimpering anticlimax there you go. That's uh, without, nice. with, well without, without Jesus. I mean, it's just uh, literally the Bible ends with, uh, if you read it in the order <laughs> that uh, ancient Jews read it in the Tanakh order, it ends with, uh, I think, Chronicles, and uh, I think at the end of Chronicles, there's like this weird little uh, end note where some, uh, I guess, uh, the one of the chroniclers uh, is like, and wouldn't it be great if there were uh, a king like David and a prophet like Moses? And, mm. and it's just left very open-ended. Yeah. 
Um, and so, uh, <laughs> again, without Jesus, a lot of these uh, threads are left unresolved. You know, I just think about how blessed we are this side of the cross in, in the day that we live, sitting here holding our Bibles and, and reading this and knowing who the Messiah is, thinking, in fact, with this psalm dating roughly a thousand years B.C., if we put it in the time of David, they just knew of the anointed and their hopes yeah. were in a man and hopefully what God was going to do through the lineage of that man, David, to the kings uh, there. But we're so blessed. We're so blessed to be able to sit here today and, and read these passages and tie the all the little threads together to the New Testament, to our hope, and really see how the Bible's working itself out and studying its own context. It's really just a privilege and an honor to be able to, to read the Bible and understand it. So, excuse me, correction. Deuteronomy ends with the little note that's like, wouldn't it be great if there were a prophet like Moses? Second Chronicles ends with the proclamation of Cyrus, where Cyrus uh, uh, says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So weirdly, if you read it without Jesus, uh, Cyrus is like the final answer, which again... Seems like a pretty big anticlimax to me, but uh, I mean, he was a messiah character. He certainly was figure, was a yes. He certainly was a messiah type, um, mm-hmm. to be certain. There were many, many uh, yeah. messiah types. Um, so um, yeah, he's a big, important one. But it, if he's the final one, that's kind of unimpressive. Right. To me. <laughs> but yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that was a good discussion. I was probably a little bit all over the place. I've been having a weird couple days. Just well. I love Paul. People are getting used to it. This is what our conversations are like. They are all over the place. And, and that might be a little tricky for people at first, but if you hang in there, you'll you'll try to, you'll kind of get our rhythm and, and understand how we think. Well, yeah, and we might get better at focusing them as we go uh, and, you know, getting feedback from you guys. And, uh, yeah, so that's a good reminder to myself to check the podcast email because uh, still ain't done that. But, uh <laughs> I will check it and I'll respond to your queries and questions. And uh, in the meantime, we're going to hit you with our first week of proper episodes next week. First week of 2020. All right. New year, new me. Not really new me. Same, same old me. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. The the outer man is is dying, but the inner self is renewed day by day. There you go. Uh, trying to throw a little scripture into this, even though I think I probably messed the quote up. But yeah, uh, so give us your feedback. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Keep it biblical. I don't know. Is that a good way to end the show? Sure, if that's what you want to do, buddy. This is your podcast. We're still working this out. Keep listening to the podcast. See you later.